And now, from the great state of Mississauga in Ontario, Canada, it's the Ted Wallachian Podcast. Brought to you by Tom's Place, for the finest in men's fashion. Tom's Place will suit you. And ETP Canada, providing a state administration with ease. ETP Canada. And now, here's Ted. Thank you, Becky, and welcome one and all. Appreciate you joining us here on the Ted Wallachian Podcast. And for those of you who have been visiting our website at www tedwallishan.ca hope you're listening back on some of the old programs that we've done and hope you continue to do so and sign up and uh, get ready to receive some information from us got a great show this week uh, my special guest began his legendary career and i mean legendary career in radio as a part-time employee at the age of just 17 a vast majority of his career more than 50 years was working for Chum Radio, first on the AM side and then over at Chum FM. He is a member of the Canadian Music and Broadcast Hall of Fame and recently had a street named after him in Toronto. Currently, he hosts a weekly Roger Ashby Oldie Show on iHeart Radio stations, and his voice can be heard on CNIB audiobooks as well as on AMI television. Roger Ashby. It's 10.06 from Chum. Canada's number one music station with Roger Ashby this morning and Redbone. Roger, it's great to see you. Thanks so much for taking the time. I really do appreciate it. Great to see you, Ted. It's been a while. It has been a while. You know, and I was talking to somebody the other day and, and they said, did you ever work with Roger? I said, no, we worked across from each other for a number of years. And I mean, I, I, you know, you, you started radio a bit before I did. And uh, so I've certainly known you and we've met on many occasions, but we never yeah. have uh, worked together, Yeah, which yeah. is unfortunate. But uh, we do share one thing in common is um, you and I both started with this little Seabreeze uh, turntable <laughs> pretending that we were working on the radio. Well, that's I true. love that story. Well, I was uh, I was 10 years old. I knew from the time I was 10 that I wanted to get into broadcasting. And my dad was pretty good with uh, carpentry work. So he built me a little radio station, a little U-shaped uh, setup where I had turntables and a Simpson Sears uh, tape recorder and reel-to-reel tape. <laughs> and a microphone that was connected to the radio in the kitchen so my mother could hear me. Apart from that, I was yeah. walking to the four walls. But I, I did that from the time I was 10 until the end of high school. And I yeah. did it almost daily. You know, other kids would be at the baseball or football game or whatever, and I'd, I'd be downstairs playing radio. Um, yeah. But I always said to myself, by the time I got my first part-time job, I had seven years' experience. But I understand that that you you recently came upon some letters that your mother had written correspondence. I, I did. Where she talked about at the age of like three, Rogers playing radio again. Yeah, at that, that's right. That one particular letter that I discovered after she passed away, um, that was sent to my aunt, and it said uh, Rogers playing radio again. And I looked at the date, <laughs> and I would have been three and a half years old. Wow. So I don't know. I don't know how to. I mean, I can't. That. I can't remember that far back. I I had this discussion with a friend the other day. I mean, how far can you remember back? I'm thinking maybe like when I was four or five or whatever. But to have uh, to be at the age of three and a half or even three mm. to be playing radio, you got to think to yourself, what what made that kind of an impression on you? 
I don't know. I, I do remember, like uh, a lot of us probably, playing uh, television where you'd get a cardboard box and cut the bottom yeah. out and you'd put yeah. it in there and pretend you're on TV. I actually remember doing that as a young kid, but I don't remember playing radio that young. So to read that letter was uh, quite a, an eye-opener. Yeah. Now, didn't your dad, did you, you had a fascination for buses as well, right? <laughs> and didn't your dad build you like sort of a mock bus in the basement he did, as he well? Did. We had, we had a, an unfinished basement and between all the support beams downstairs, he built me uh, a, a shell of a bus. So there was a, <laughs> a door with a spring on it that I could open from the driver's seat, which he built. He built a driver's seat and we put an old steering wheel on it. He made a fare box like they used to have years ago yeah. and, uh, you know, maybe half a dozen seats behind me. And, um, again, I, you know, I was by myself, I'm an only child and I didn't have any friends who wanted to come and sit on the bus with me. So I was down there by myself and I was in Brantford at the time and there were only seven bus routes. I remember this distinctly. And I hmm. traveled on all seven bus routes when I was eight, nine years old. Yeah. By myself, no eight and nine year old would go on the bus by themselves these days. But I, uh, I won't go by myself. No, exactly. So I, I traveled all seven routes, and I had them all memorized in my head. So this sounds pretty weird, but I would sit there and I would, I would play the route in my head to the exact length of time that it took the route, took the bus to travel the route. And I, I just had a fascination. I, I made notes of the numbers of the buses that traveled on each route, and I got to tell you, even today. Uh, I, I, every bus I see on the road, I look at, I, I look to see where it's going, uh, what the route number is. Uh, I'm still fascinated with them, but just city buses, not Greyhound buses or gold buses, just city buses. Yeah. You, you, you think about it, you were sort of ahead of the curve because you, you, had you combined the two things, your, your love of music and your, and your knowledge of music. And being a bus driver, you, you could have been like the original sort of cash cab. You could have brought people on the bus and, and thrown all these trivia at them and see how far they can go. Well, hey, is it too late? I don't think so. I don't think so. Why not? Yeah, you like like many people I've interviewed over the years who who started in in radio. They 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 kind of nudge their way into a job by hanging around the local radio station, especially if you were from a smaller town, which, which you were, uh, and you kind of got to know somebody who worked there and eventually they'd let you into the building and you fetch coffee. And that's how it all got started mm -hmm. for you, isn't it? It is. I moved from Brantford when I was 13, so I never really got to know uh, anybody in radio there. I knew of them, but I didn't know them. And, um, when I was in grade 10, we moved to Kitchener-Waterloo, and so I would have been 15 then. So that's when I started hanging around the local station. Got to know some of the part-time people who worked there on the weekends, and they'd have me up, and I'd, I'd sit in with them maybe on their all-night show. And uh, one guy in particular who I really enjoyed being with, his name was Gil Gardner, and he, uh, he would give me the old uh, commercial transcriptions that they'd be throwing out they didn't need anymore. And I'd take mm -hmm. them home and I'd use them in my, my own radio station. I'd, I'd play them as commercials. So, uh, yeah. And then um, at the end of, well, no, during high school, I got a part-time job at CKKW, which still exists under different uh, call letters, as uh, a board op. And then the FM station went on the air for the first time in Kitchener in 1967. And they hired me to do two weekend shows. 
So that was mm-hmm. that was a, that was a pretty good break. Now we only talked four or five times an hour, but you know what it was like back in those days. But that was yep. that was pretty exciting. And then from there, I uh, went to CKOC. Now, who hired you? Was it Nevin Grant? No, it wasn't Nevin. It was a guy named Larry Gavin. Larry Gavin. And the, the way I got in there was uh, their uh, morning man at CKOC had been hired by CKKW, Gary Parkhill. And Gary came, and I got to know him. And he said, he said, you know, they're looking for uh, a, a swing jock, you know, at CKOC. I said, oh, really? So he said, yeah, call Larry Gavin. So I called Larry Gavin, went for an interview, and, and got the job. And I went in as a swing jock that just shortly before my 18th birthday. No, 19th birthday. And Nevin was there. I got to know Nevin really well. He was, he was a great mentor. And I spent a year. Ne- Nevin Grant, for those people who are not familiar with him, unfortunately passed away a number of years ago. He ran CKOC. Uh, wonderful, wonderful man. A, a, a brilliant radio and a brilliant music guy. Like he knew stuff about music. Yeah. Kind of like you. Knew a lot of stuff about a lot of musicians and a lot of a lot of B-side knowledge, as we like to say. Well, we had great chats about all that stuff. We had a real good bond because of what we enjoyed in the music industry. And uh, he, he eventually became a, a, a boss there, and uh, he was a very likable man, Nevin Grant. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I owe him a lot, and uh, I'm so sad that he passed away. Yeah, me too. You you spent in total what a year, a year Just and a half a year. at at OC. Just a Just year, a very memorable year. I mean, I, I can recall all kinds of things I did and where I lived, and uh, I lived in a boarding house when I first went there, and. Uh, you know, that's quite an experience. There were 10 guys in the boarding <laughs> house, five bedrooms. So two guys to a bedroom. And wow. I was, uh, I shared a room with a guy named Ed. He was from Nova Scotia. He was so funny. You know, I was so young. I was just barely 19. And these guys, you know, they come from other provinces. They were working at Stelco and places like that. They couldn't afford an apartment. So they were at this boarding house. But we ate dinner tonight, uh, uh, every night together. And uh, it was just a real riot. I'm so glad I experienced that. So it comes 1969, and you get this opportunity to work at Chum, which 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 is an amazing thing for people who don't understand. This is the number one uh, market in the country and the number one top 40 station. It, thanks to a guy named Rick Murray. That's right. Rick, Rick and I went to high school together. And I got him interested in radio with the little mock station that I had set up at home. And we used to, we used to do that together. And then we both thought someday we would like to work at Chum. Well, he got there before me because he went as a board op. I can't remember exactly how he got the job, but uh, through a connection. And he was a board op, a very good board op. And he had been there maybe six months before I, I was hired. And my understanding is that uh, J. Robert Wood, the program director, said to Rick, uh, do you know anybody young around your age who would be suitable to do the all night show? Because this is when Bob Wood was making all of his big changes, you know, out with the old mm-hmm. and with the new. And uh, most of the new were Americans, but he wanted a, a Canadian who would work for peanuts on the all night show. <laughs> so Rick recommended me, and uh, he called me in Hamilton, asked me to come down for an interview, and I got the job. Funny story that um, he said, "Okay, um, we'll we'll pay you uh, what was it? 
600 a month. And I think I was making 500 a month in Hamilton. So I thought I would give them $600 a month. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) But my dad had always told me, you know, think about it, never make the decision too quickly. So I went to the morning man at CKOC at the time. He was probably 40 years old, but he seemed like an older person to me at the time. And I said, Jack, it was Jack Stevens, what would you do? And he said, well, how much do you think uh, you, you want? And I thought, well, 800. He said, and you call them back and you tell them you can't come for any less than 800. I thought, well, what if they say no? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know, I didn't know what to do. So I did. I called him and I said, I'd, I really want to come. I said, but I can't come for less than 800 a month. And, you know, right away he said, okay. Then I thought I wow. should have asked for nine. I know. <laughs> but Did he, you ever see that? That remember the old Mary Tyler Moore show where there was yeah. one episode where Mary, Mary and Lou were discussing salary, and and he he says well, you write down on a piece of paper how much you want, and I write down on a piece of paper how much I want to pay you, and then we'll swap papers. Mm-hmm. So she writes down a figure, gives it to him, and he writes down a figure, and they both open up the figure, and Lou realizes that he is offering her more than she was going to ask him, and goes crazy. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny two and a half years of, i mean when you first walked in i mean how daunting was that to, to walk into 1331 young well you know uh, how well do i actually remember that i don't think i found it daunting i found it exciting i was so yeah. thrilled and uh one of the first people i met was hal weaver i don't know if you remember him and Sure, and, uh, sure. Chuck McCoy, who I still keep in touch mm-hmm. with. Uh, and they were also very nice. Chuck was great. Chuck was just, you know, come on in, kid. And uh, he preceded me, and then I did the all-night show. So I don't think I found it daunting. I just thought, well, they, they want me here. I'm really excited to be here. Let's go. You know? Now, when you, when, you, when you arrive there and you're doing the all-night show, do you have an op, or are you opping yourself? Uh, both. I had... Uh, initially, yeah, I had an, uh, an op initially and then things changed and I didn't. So I'd be running my own board and then, uh, later I would have an op. So I, you know, I, one way or the other, uh, I, I was happy. I didn't care whether I had an op or not, although it was certainly nice to have one for, to, simply for the company in the middle of the night. Um, yeah. we even had all night newscast then Larry Wilson at one time did the all night news on, on Chum when I wow. was there, Brian, uh, Brian Williams. We still, uh, Brian and I still talk about that. Well, you did the two and a half years and it's a great, it's, it's the world's greatest learning ground, the all night yeah. show, because you, you know yourself for the most part after like one o'clock, especially back in those days, nobody's really around. There's yeah. not that many people listening, right? So you can, you can screw up left, right and center. Once, once you start getting closing in on the early morning hours, though, you better start sounding a little bit better Yeah, because you're getting close to the morning man's time, right? Well, yeah, that, that's true. But you know, in a city, the size of Toronto, even then uh, there were the all night cabbies, there were the uh, insomniacs yeah. and you get to know them on the phone. You know, I could, I got to know people's voices on the phone. And I remember this one fellow called me up. Uh, I even remember his name. His name was Bob, and he he wasn't much older than me, but he grew up in Toronto, and I was anxious to learn more about the city, so he said, let's meet for coffee, and he drove me all around Toronto, showing me all kinds of different things about the city, which I thought was great, and um, it helped me get to know the city, because I really believe you should know the city you're working in. 
too many yeah. of these people. You travel from one city to another, and it's a very transient business, as you know, and they never really get to know the city they're working in. And because mm -hmm. of that, because of what the, him doing that for me, and later, like 10 years later, when we would hire somebody new, Bob Wood would ask me, show the guy the city. And we'd get in the car and we'd just drive from Etobicoke to Scarborough. I'd point out all the points of interest. And uh, they were really grateful for it because they felt like they, they knew the city and they'd only been there a couple of weeks. Yeah, yeah. and in how many cases, you, when you hear even to this day, people on the radio or people on television who are not from the city come into the city and start mispronouncing names of streets. Right. Oh, yeah. Strachan Avenue yeah. and, you know, the yeah. thing there's a, and it's like, oh, my God, it's I terrible. Know. Yeah, you've got to do your research on stuff like that. You move from the all night show to middays. I, you know, I, by that time I had wanted to get off the all night show. I wanted to move up and I, I bugged Bob with a lot. And, uh, you know, he said, you're not ready. You're not ready. You're not ready. And then one day he said, okay, he said, we're going to give you 11 to three because the morning show ended at nine. Jane Nelson finished at nine. Then they had the John Gilbert talk show from nine to 11. Right. And right. I did 11 to three, which was what a great shift that was. You know, you didn't have to get up early and you were finished by, you know, you'd be out of there by four o'clock. So, um, yeah, I did that for another two and a half years, I think it was. Now, at one point, you sort of dipped your toes into in, into programming. I did, because I always thought, it, no matter what your job was, the idea was to work your way up. So yeah. you would, in radio, you'd get out of the all-night show, get into the midday show, and then I became Jane Ellison's replacement when he went on vacation. So I got a taste of the morning show. So I, I did various things time periods. And by 1975, uh, I thought, well, maybe it's time I get into programming because I was already doing some work in the library, in the music department. So Bob mm -hmm. Wood brought me on. I was really the assistant PD, although I was never given the title. And I realized after a couple of years, this isn't what I want to do. And yeah. so did he. He realized that I wasn't the guy to do it. And I was in that position, I guess, for about four years. And then in 1979, I came out of programming. It was a mutual agreement. I, I just, I thought, I want to be on the radio. That's what I got into this business for. Despite yeah. the fact that I sh thought I should move up into programming, I thought, no, I, this isn't for me. But I'm sure glad I had a chance to do it to find that out. And, now, uh, did you get into radio because of your your passion for music, or did you get into radio because you wanted to, for because you had a passion for communications? Yeah, I, I wanted I, I, it's more communication than music. I, I always knew the music, uh, but the, the idea of getting into radio was to be able to impart that knowledge and just talk to people. People yeah. like John Sprague, who did the midday show on Chum back in the 60s, early 60s, and he became a bit of a friend afterwards. Uh, he was one of my mentors because he was just that pleasant-sounding person on the radio. He wasn't funny necessarily. He wasn't, uh, you know, he was just just a nice, warm sound on the radio. Right. And uh, that's what that's what I, I thought. This is great. That's that's what I want to do. I remember my dad saying to me, "Well, if you can be as good as Fred Davis, you'll go a long way." Remember Fred <laughs> Davis? Yeah. No, I think course. see the thing about Fred Davis too was he was just kind of a regular guy. He did his job well as moderator of the show, and uh, he was pleasant, you know, and I thought, I, I like that. I, I'm, I never considered myself an entertainer or a comedian by any means. I wasn't a Jack Armstrong or 
Scott Carpenter or any of these people. I, I just wanted to talk on the radio and, and play the music that I liked. Yeah. But, but you're, you are a music aficionado. I mean, you are probably one of the more, most knowledgeable people that I know when it comes to, especially the oldies, the oldies music. And I mean, there's a lot of people who love listening to music and they can, they can name that tune in three, in three bars, but you can name that tune and tell, tell you who, who wrote it uh, and who the producer was and what other songs that that person had written for somebody else. Well, you know, yeah, you know what I'm I, I, I did have a, an avid interest. I still do, but not, not in today's music. I, I, I don't think I've no. listened to current music since I retired. But, um, you yeah, know, growing up, I, I, I followed the music. I followed the producers. I followed the, the writers, uh, the artists themselves. And um, I, I just thought, now, that was, that was pop music, and it was singles. You know, when album rock came along, I, I know half a dozen Pink Floyd songs. I couldn't tell you anything about their albums or Jethro Tull or people like that. That mm-hmm. never appealed to me. It was it was pop music that I was always interested in. I remember uh, when Sugar Sugar was number one, and that was that was the number one song the day I started at Chum. No, it was number one song the uh, week that my picture first appeared on the Chum chart. And I, I remember was going to ask you that. I was being in the bathroom. I was in the bathroom, and uh, one of the guys from FM came in at the same time, and uh, he was playing Barkley James Harvest or something, which is a pretty good band. And they said, "What are you playing?" I said, well, "I'm playing Sugar Sugar by the Sugar Sugar by the Archies." And he goes, he gives me rolls his eyes at me and says, <laughs> "Have fun," you know, like it was <laughs> condescending because uh, we're on FM, you know, we we play the real music. You, you guys are playing the pop stuff, but sorry, that's what I liked. I still do. Yeah, I think you described the difference between uh, Chum AM and Chum FM as it being like uh, the, the the Berlin Wall separating the two radio well, stations kind of i mean they were so different there was no animosity no nobody really disliked no. anybody and and we wouldn't really see a lot of each other because as you say we'd each be on one side of the hall but if you happen to meet in the bathroom or if you're walking down the hallway uh you know i knew them all i and, you know they they knew us and uh i mean john donaby was there for a long time brian master great guys i i, I still see them uh so yeah, a bit of I know what you mean by Berlin Wall, but it, there was there was certainly a difference in approach, but there was no animosity. Yeah. So if, eventually Nelson leaves. Jay Nelson leaves. Um, Tom Rivers takes over for Jay Nelson. Tom gets let go. One of I think four times yeah, or something. Exactly. And my understanding was I think his grandmother died. Not, not that I should talk, but uh, so he leaves and, and then you get the gig. Now, the morning show is unlike any program on the radio station. Yeah. Because you've got the people at their most vulnerable. Yeah. Like they're literally naked listening to you. Yeah, I suppose so. Right? Well, I think, you know, one of the reasons that I got that show when Tom left was because I wasn't, I wasn't doing a full-time shift. As I said, I, I came out of programming and I was on swing from another two and a half year stint from 79 into uh, early 82 when, when he left. So, and I, I had been filling in for him too, when he was on vacation as I had for Jane Nelson. So I was given the opportunity to do the morning show, but it was supposed to be temporary. Yeah. And we called it lotto six to nine because <laughs> every once in a while they would bring somebody in to audition for a day or two, like Joey Reynolds who I thought was absolutely horrible. I think Joey Reynolds was great in 1962. 
But uh, by the time the now he's from it, Buffalo, right? Yeah, from Buffalo. I'm, I don't mean to put him down, but I thought, why would you bring this guy in at this stage of his career to do the 1050 Chum morning show? And they'd bring in other people too, and they'd call me up and say, okay, we'll take tomorrow off. We got so and so coming in to audition. So I, I did it temporarily for three years. And I was paired up with Mike Holland, who I really enjoyed working with. Um, but I've always felt that our roles weren't defined. If you've got a two or three person morning show, you've got to define what each person does, what they're responsible mm -hmm. for, what their duties are. Yeah. And our roles were never defined. So we both, I think, felt a little lost at times. And then uh, they took me off the morning show and brought John Major in to work with Mike Holland. And I think that was because Mike and John were pretty good friends and Mike didn't want to do the morning show at all after a while it wasn't because of me i don't think he just didn't want to do mornings but they said okay well we'll bring major in and we he'll work with you he said okay so they worked together for a while until that fell apart so mm -hmm. here i am now i've done three years of the morning show on am and i'm kind of out of work and here let me before i say anything else i want to tell you that with the waters family as owners you never felt like they were going to let you go they would always find something for you and that's what they did for me. That's what they did for me when uh, I came out of programming. That's what they did for me when I came off the AM morning show. Mm -hmm. um, it wasn't like, well, sorry, don't need you anymore, like it is today. Yeah. So yeah. Ross Davies, who was program director, and Duff Roman over on FM right. said, said, well, heck, if they don't want you over there, come on over here. And my timing is right because they hadn't really found a permanent morning show person. So I was given that opportunity. So I was kind of in the right place at the right time for a number of things. So now when you go from AM morning show to the FM side doing the morning show, what are the biggest differences? I would imagine the amount of time that you have to fill talking versus playing music would be enough. Well, one. by the time I went over, Ted, they had started to change to become more of a top 40 sound. They had gotten mm -hmm. away from the uh, Chum FM of the 70s, and they were changing into a more contemporary station. I think they knew that the music days on AM were numbered, and uh, FM was the place to be. So it was, it was a pretty tightly formatted show. Of course, I did get a chance to talk more because it was the morning show, but um, they were all, the, the move was underway already. Ted Wallison returns in a moment. I've had the great fortune to say that I've been associated with one of Toronto's finest names in men's clothing for more than 25 years, Tom's Place. Founded by Tom Mahalik's father in 1958, Tom's Place offers brand name men's apparel at unbeatable prices. But more than that, they boast a long-serving, knowledgeable, and friendly staff that can assist you whether you're looking for casual or formal attire. And they have plenty of first-class tailors on site. In addition, Tom and his family are well known for their philanthropic work. So if you're looking to deal with great people who can fulfill your clothing desires at outstanding prices, do yourself a favor and visit Tom's Place. They're open weekdays from 11 to 6, Saturdays 10 to 5, and Sundays noon to 5. You'll find Tom's Place at 190 Baldwin in the heart of Kensington Market. Or check them out online at toms-place.com. Tom's Place will suit you. 
Have you been tasked with the role of a state executor or expected maybe in the future you will be? Well, if so, let me make your life a lot simpler by introducing you to my friend Debbie Stanley. Debbie is the founder of ETP Canada. They specialize in estate administration. Their goal simply is to help Canadian executors understand their role and how to deal with a loved one's estate. Let's face it, there's no school for this. But ETP Canada offers services such as executor support, estate accounting, and they have a new online course called Executor Ready. It's an engaging video designed to make estate administration easier and affordable. And those are two comforting thoughts during a stressful time. So call Debbie Stanley at one 866 309-0387, that's one 309 or you can get her at info at etpcanada.ca, that's info at etpcanada.ca. Now back to Ted Wallachan. So you found the sound, we're so happy to have you around, CHUM 1050 Toronto. It was funny because at one time it was Chum AM that was the support beam for for Chum Radio. Yeah. I mean, it supported without, without Chum AM, Chum FM would have never have survived. Right. And then suddenly the whole world turned upside down. Yeah, it did. It just completely reversed. And uh, you know, Rick Hodge had already been there when I came over, so I worked yeah. with Hodge, and then a year later, it was thought we should bring in a third person, and it should be female. Right. So do you want me to tell you this, the story of, of Marilyn's arrival? Well, I, I understand that there were numerous people who came in to apply for the job, most of whom were, were not prepared for it at all because they just didn't have the experience. Well, that's true. There weren't, you know, this is 1986, and there weren't a lot of female broadcasters, especially on right. on top 40 kind of radio. You'd have them on the CBC, and you'd had the Betty yeah. Kennedys of the world, but you didn't have a lot of disc jockeys who were female. And um, we auditioned probably 100 actresses. And they could act, but they couldn't just be themselves behind a microphone when we did our audition. So we got really frustrated and we had found no one. And uh, as luck would have it, Marilyn came to town. Her husband had been transferred from Calgary. She came with him and she had done some radio and TV work in Calgary. And she came into Chum, and uh, Ross Davies said, there's a woman named Marilyn Dennis. Would you uh, do an audition with her? So I did. And within minutes, and I'm sure she'll tell you the same thing, we, we thought we had known each other a lifetime. She was the brother I never had. She was the sister I never had. And uh, we clicked. That chemistry thing happened. And, yeah. uh, and, and, sh- and she began. She didn't start immediately with us for the complete show. She started out in the newsroom doing traffic, which was, I don't know why they ever did that, but that's the way it was. And then after a while, she just became part of the show. Now, was she working, um, doing her television show at the same time, or did that come sometime later? That came um, a year or two later. Yeah, I think it was 88 when she got her TV show. Right. Yeah, and she just retired. Which she just retired from. That's, yeah. that's, that's another one of those um, um, amazing careers. And, and, and you're right, back in, in the days, with the exception of CBC or Betty Kennedy over at CFRB, women's, there weren't many rules for women on, no. on Top 40 radio. No. I remember a time when I first started working in radio, 
where we had a rule where you couldn't play two female singers yeah. back to back. I know. I remember that. But, you know, whenever, <laughs> whenever that comes up in conversation with people, you know, they say, oh, well, that's sexist or that's, you know, why would you ever have a rule like that? And I always think to myself, because for a while there, there weren't a lot of female singers having hit records. You know, there was Brenda Lee, too. there was Connie Francis, and then there was the odd one hit wonder. But yeah. seriously, they, they, there weren't as many. So if you only had half a dozen female artists to choose from on your playlist, why would you play them all back to back? But I think it was also the fact that it was sexist. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I guess so. You mentioned the Chum Chart earlier, and I wanted to talk to you about that, because to me, growing up, I mean, Chum was the radio station that I listened to. Chum was the radio station I wanted to work at. I never did get a chance to do so. But, uh, and like so many other hundreds of thousands of people collected Chum Charts, and every Thursday, whenever they came out, I think it was. Mm-hmm. When the, the first Chum Chart came out with your picture on it, how was that? Oh, man. It was like I'd become, uh, you know, a worldwide celebrity or whatever. Yeah. Just, I thought, my God, my picture is on the chum chart. It's sitting in a rack in Sam the Record Man and A&A Records in downtown Toronto with my picture on it. It was, yeah, just blew me away. Yeah, And they're giving away from free. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of people are going to grab them. <laughs> right. The old adage, if it's free, it's for me, right? Yeah. And every once in a while, somebody would send me an old chum chart, uh, you know, say, do you remember this? And I certainly do. I've, I've got all the chum charts from 1961 on. I collected them week by week when I was a kid, and then I continued to collect them when I was working there. So I've got them wow. all here so right st- beside me in big binders. So you still have your, your, your original chum chart? Yeah, I do. I guess somebody had com- compiled a book, on, a chum chart book, some years ago? Yes. His name was Ron Hall. And uh, I still talk to Ron from time to time. He did a, an excellent job putting that book together. And um, I'm looking at a copy right now on my bookshelf over there. Um, I, I still get people saying, well, where can I get that chum chart book? And I say, well, I don't think you can anymore. It's, it's, it's discontinued. I, I give them Ron's email address, but I don't know that he can help them out. But it was a very good book. Yeah. So although you retired, as you like to call it, back in 2018 from, from Chum FM, uh, you continue, you're still on the air on a weekly syndicated Roger Ashby oldie show. Right. So you're not really, you haven't really retired, retired. Because I get the feeling you, you can't, you're one of those guys who can't really retire, retire. Right. And, you know, we, I think you're the same. You're doing your podcast now. and Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, I think for most people who are in radio for a length, length of time, it's it's in your blood, and you can't just walk away from it. And it's not just yeah. radio. There are a lot of jobs that people have trouble just walking away from. I, I know a, a sure. dental surgeon right now who's uh, having a difficult time dealing with the fact that, you know, he just may, be, may not be able to do it much longer. And uh, yeah. it, it's stressful. So he'll probably end up doing some consulting or something. But that happens to a lot of people. And retirement really isn't, I don't think it's all that easy. You know, you talk to somebody who yeah, maybe got a, right. a humdrum job and they say, gee, I can't wait until I'm 65. I'm going to retire. I'm going to relax. I'm going to go boating or whatever I'm going to do. And you can only boat or golf so much. Yeah, you, you have to have something to do. I've seen people fall apart. Successful people who no longer have an identity uh, as, as someone in the workforce and they just kind of fall apart as the next few years go by. And it's such a shame. So 
you've got to do something. I'm glad I'm doing this one show a week. It runs on a few stations around uh, the province. Uh, actually, a station in Manitoba, New Brunswick, that runs it. And it's on the iHeartRadio app, and it, it keeps me busy. I get the feeling that people like you and me, once we hit a certain age when n- nobody will really want to listen to us, we'll just we'll just revert back to our, our youth and start pull out the old sea breeze and, and start talking <laughs> to nobody in the basement. Yeah. Well, you know, I, <laughs> you know? <laughs> I, I record my show from home. I record it. Uh, I, I do the voice tracks from home. They, yeah. Bell Media was kind enough to get me a retro looking microphone. It's a, it's a great old-fashioned, it's not old, but it's old-fashioned looking. So I use that, and I record my voice tracks to an iPod, and then I send them to my producer, who puts the music and the jingles in. But right now, you, you talk about consulting. Do you get people who are younger people who may be friends of, you know, uh, children that are friends of you? Mm-hmm. Your friend's children yeah, is what I'm trying to say if I can speak English, yeah. uh, who, who ask, ask you for advice in terms of getting into radio. Because I'm, I wonder what, what kind of an answer you would give knowing what's gone on in this industry in the last half dozen years. Well, I know it's a, it's a tough one. I, I, have to, I have to be honest with them about that very fact, about how not many places are hiring. They're letting people go. I always say, talk to as many people as you can in radio, radio veterans, get their opinions on things, get their take, pick their brains. Um, don't get into radio for the money. I mean, you, you can make good money, but not everybody does. You have to get into it because you have a passion for it. I know I, I did some teaching out at Seneca College many years ago, and I've, I've attended classes of uh, friends I know who teach out there. And you can tell, you can look out into the crowd of 20 kids and you can pick out the four that are going to make it. You can, you can just tell by the way they're sitting there. And yeah. um, I always say you got to have a passion for it. If you're getting into it because it's, it sounds pretty cool, people are going to hear you, it sounds like an easy job, that's all the wrong reasons to get in. You have to have a passion for it. So, I, and I say to them, if you don't, like if you don't really have a passion for it, as we sit here and talk to each other right now, find something else to do. Yeah. Yeah. And if you are fortunate to get in, uh, talk to the listener, not at the listener. I remember once uh, Marilyn and Rick and I were doing a piece and one of the salesmen came in and he said, my wife was listening this, this morning and she felt like she was eavesdropping at a party. And that hit me because I thought, that's not how she's supposed to feel. She's supposed to feel like we're talking to her. But to her, yeah. it, it sounded like we were talking to each other and she was, you know, kind of eavesdropping. So, Well, that's the thing is it's such a personal thing that, that it's, and again, going back to the fact doing the morning show, I mean, you're so intimate with those people and you meet people after they've listened to you for five, six, ten years, whatever it may be, or four, 45 years, and and they swear that they, they they've known you for their entire life, yeah. and it, they can walk up to you and feel totally comfortable putting their arms around you, and you're thinking like, who is this person? That's a great but compliment. You, you've been, yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. But but it's it's kind of a strange thing when when you're not used to it at yeah. first. Yeah, yeah. But you know, people say uh, you guys are like family to us. <laughs> is there any higher compliment? Yeah. No, no. 
Well, I don't know, depending on your family dynamics, I suppose. Yeah. And then, of course, there's the old, the old. you don't look anything like you sound. Oh, I, oh yeah, well, of course. Oh, yeah. Gee, you're such yeah. an old guy with that big voice. Yeah. And then I always say, somewhat jokingly, but I say, never use the word folks. Hello, folks. Everybody listens with their own ears. You're talking to one person at a time. Yeah, that's right. Nobody's like folks back in the 40s, maybe when, you know, you gathered around the radio to hear the latest uh, soap opera or whatever it was. Maybe, maybe then, but I, I, I never do that. Even if I'm in front of a crowd on stage, I would never say folks. You know, people don't listen as a group. They listen by themselves. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. One of the great things, and at the same time can be one of the disappointing things about being in radio, is you get to meet all these in some cases, people who were your idols growing up, musicians, athletes, actors, etc. And the worst thing in the world is when you meet somebody that you love their music and you love their talent and you just think the world of them and the person turns out to be a dick. That, that's happened. Not, not very often, but you're right, it does. And it's really disappointing. You know, uh, if somebody says to me, can I have your autograph? I, I get embarrassed right away because I think, what the hell would you want my autograph for? But, yeah. but I, I do. I, I give it to them because to say no, like sometimes yeah. you hear some of these movie stars, they say no. They roll up the window in the car. No. Wait, what? So that person now for the rest of their lives is going to tell that story about how so-and-so shunned them and wouldn't even give them an autograph. Yeah. If they had given the person an autograph, they would tell the opposite story and make the person seem like a real nice guy. So, and if not for that person, you wouldn't be here. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, who you know. So, it's like know. talking about biting the hand that feeds you. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I never so. understood that. I, I always, I always stop and talk to somebody if they want to talk to me. Who are some of the great people that you've met over the years that you really impressed, not only just for their talent, but for their personality, for the kinds of person that they number were? Number one, Tony Bennett. I've heard that from a number of people. Yeah, Tony Bennett. He, We met him, I think, around his 80th birthday. And he was calling me Raj after about five minutes. You know, and it's just, it was so casual and comfortable. He, he, he You could tell he liked being there. Here's a guy 80 years old. He, he really enjoyed being with us for 15, 20 minutes. Uh, and I said, how, why, why are you still doing this at, uh, you know, at your age? I can't remember how I put it. And he said, well, I said, this is what I do. And, you know, as, as I got older after meeting him, I thought, well, he's right. That's, that's what he does. So why, why would you stop doing it? And he loves to paint too, as you, as you may know, but uh, mm -hmm. yeah, he, he's, he's number one. Mick Jagger would be number two. Uh, he, he was also very nice. We met him in Barbados and I don't know why that surprises me. Well, Mick Jagger, yeah. not Tony Bennett, but Mick Jagger. Yeah. I don't know why. Well, I think, <clears throat> I think it was under the circumstances because we, uh, we used to take contest winners to Barbados. We went down there over 30 times and, yeah. uh, uh, that was actually the first year we went that we found out Mick Jagger was on the island and he was recording at Eddie Grant's studio. Eddie Grant had bought an old plantation, had turned the yeah. uh, slaves' quarters into a studio and left wow. the rings in the wall, the metal rings, where the slaves would be tied up. 
It was wow. really something horrific to see, but he wanted there as, that as a reminder. Nevertheless, there was a studio that he built there, and Mick Jagger was there recording at Eddie Grant's studio, and we knew people in the record industry who managed to get Ross Davies and myself, Ross was our program director at the time at Chum FM, to get the two of us in to, to meet Mick. So it was very casual. You know, he's, he's just hanging around this wonderful plantation recording now and then. And we sat outside, the crickets were chirping, and uh, we, we talked about music, and we actually talked about cricket because he's a big cricket fan. And uh, <laughs> after, after the interview, he said, well, I've, I've got to get back into the studio. So he goes into the studio, and Ross and I are standing there, and Ross has got his camera with him. There's no phone cameras in those days, an actual little camera. And we thought, shit, we wanted to get a picture with Mick. We, we didn't do it. So we called back into the studio on the house phone and said, can Mick come out and have a picture taken with us? And he said, sure. So he came out. So now the three of us are standing there with really no one to take the picture because whoever took the picture wasn't going to be in it. <laughs> so Mick said, I'll find somebody. And he left for about five minutes and came back with, with one of the uh, employees of the plantation. And she took our, she took our picture. So, so that, cool. that's, that's how giving he was. It was fantastic. Yeah. You were around when, when Wolfman Jack used to come in to record his show at, at, oh, yeah. at Chum. Oh, God. Chum Radio with the oh. Wolfman. And oh. we go rock and roll, baby. It's about to to Tampa. We got brother love with us. And we go chaos Toronto. Hallelujah. We're going to charge you Funny oh, I, I interviewed him once, very briefly, when I was at, the, at CFRB, and a fascinating guy, obviously, but you got to know him a lot better than, than I did well, over the course of Well, I got an to hour. know him because I, I was the guy who was assigned to look after him when he came to Toronto. Uh-oh. So... <laughs> And how, and you can actually remember those those meetings. <laughs> yeah, yeah, some some which I can't relate, but yeah, uh, you know, a little hazy. I I would go to the airport to to meet him, and my wife yeah. came with me once. So we both went out, and then we get in the limousine. He's sitting in the middle in the back, and we're on either side of him. He's smoking dope like crazy, but he was funny. You know, he's loud, he's boisterous, and he's a funny man. So we take him down. He usually stayed at the Delta Chelsea Hotel, and. So I, I got to know him each time he came to town. I remember one time I was to meet him at the hotel and I'm walking along college or Carlton, whatever it is there. What is it? Gerard. Walking along Gerard and uh, there's a limo parked across the street and the window's down about three or four inches. And I hear him go, Roger, Roger, I'm over here. It's Wolf. I'm over here. <laughs> so, <laughs> there was also a time when uh, he would come up once a month to record three shows and do one live. So they were weekly shows. He'd do one live and record three to get him through until the next time he came up. And one time that he was there, the Beach Boys were in town. So I was sent down to a hotel to pick up Mike Love and drove Mike Love up to Chum and he sat in with Wolfman and did the show together. That was great. Because they they, they yeah. knew they knew each other, of course, and here they are together in Toronto on the radio together. Oh, so good! Yeah, so good. Uh, Don Henley is one of my favorite performers. Love Don Henley. Yeah. Uh, Stevie Nicks. Uh, don't think I ever met Linda Ronstadt, and I wish I had. I really admire not just her music, but her whole outlook on things. 
What about people in radio that really, not necessarily people that you work with at Chum, but that it could include people that you work with at Chum, that really inspired you that you that you respected as individuals and as broadcasters? John Sprague, for sure. Um, when I was in high school, I listened to CKLW in Windsor a lot, and that was the great mm-hmm. format, which was something that I really enjoyed. So I, I liked a lot of those guys. They, you know, and they didn't talk a lot on, on that, on those, at that time in that format, but I, I really enjoyed them. One, one guy's name was Ed Mitchell. And I actually ran into him uh, in a, a washroom at the Beverly Hilton hotels when I went down for a conference and he was talking to somebody and I thought, my God, that's Ed Mitchell. So I, I said, hello, you're Ed Mitchell. He said, yes. And he was very friendly. Uh, I met him. Uh, um, you know, uh, people that like cousin Brucey in New York, um, some of the guys on WLS in the, in the sixties, Bruce Bradley on WBZ in Boston was perhaps my, I never, I never met these people, but he was, he was very much a mentor when I was in high school. I just loved the way he approached uh, his show and Dick Summer, who used to be on WBZ on the all night show. You know what I what's really impressed me is you watch broadcasters as they continue in their career and they have an expanded career that you know that, that covers decades and decades and you listen to how they started off and who they were when they started off and where they are now and how much more impressive you impressed you are with them now even though they they're quote old guys like Howard Stern like I was never a fan of Howard Stern when I first started hearing him because I thought it was just it's just too crude and too base and childish humor. And now we listen to Howard Stern, and now he's become quite quite an exceptional interviewer yeah. and a broadcaster. He's a different guy. Mm-hmm. David Letterman is the same thing. If you look back in the old David Letterman shows when he used to follow Carson mm-hmm. and look at his My Next Guest Now Needs mm-hmm. No Introduction shows that yeah. he does on Netflix, he's matured into a, a, an outstanding broadcaster. Yeah, yeah exactly. I, I know exactly what you mean. I I agree with you. Howard Stern, I felt the same way as you. And I I changed my opinion of him on 9-11. Because mm. as you know, that was that happened at 9 o'clock in the morning. And we, we got off the air just as the second plane was about to hit. And I thought, who am I going to listen to? So I, I turned on Howard Stern. He's in New York, of course. And he was excellent. And, you know, you can't prepare for things like that. They just no. happen and, and you've got to rise to the occasion. And he was, he painted, he painted pictures of what was going on. He had people on the phone. He had guests come in. He talked to uh, um, NBC or columnists uh, or reporters. He really did a bang up job. And that's when my opinion changed on him. Which is a lesson to be learned from anybody who is considering a career in broadcasting. Get ready to do just about anything. Yeah. If you're one of those people who are getting into it just because you love music and you think, I'm just going to be doing playing my favorite music for the rest of my life, yeah. good luck unless you're buying your own radio station because the odds are the format's going to change or you're going to grow out of that format and you better be able to adapt mm-hmm. and do something else. Mm-hmm. That's good advice for people getting into the business. You're right. The, the day after 9-11, uh, you know, we had to do a completely different kind of show because it was such a tragedy. And Dr. Joy Brown was, she's an American um, talk show host. She was in Toronto because she couldn't get back to New York because there were no flights. 
So mm -hmm. she did her show, her nationally syndicated show, from our studios that morning. And we had the pleasure and opportunity of having her on our show to talk about it. So that really worked out well. And uh, John Roberts, who used to be J.D. Roberts here in Toronto. Sure. We had contact information for him. We got a hold of uh, J.D. and he was he was excellent in his reporting. So we, we put together a really good, thoughtful, serious show the next day because we had access to people. It was good. And that's nothing that you could have ever prepared yourself no. for as a 10 or a 17-year-old kid in Bradford or Kitchener. No, none of us, none of us could. No. No. What were your thoughts when you heard that you were going to be inducted into the Canadian Music Broadcast Hall of Fame? <laughs> well, first I was a little embarrassed because, you know, it's nice. It's great that I'm in the Hall of Fame. But I don't need that to make me feel that I've accomplished something. It's Again, if listeners say to me, you're like family to us, that means just as much or more to me as any award that I could ever be given. Mind right. you, I'm very proud of all the awards I've been given. I've got them plastered all over the walls here. And the, right. the Hall of Fame was, was a, a, a wonderful, great experience. And uh, it was a great night. I remember the speeches that everybody made and... Yeah, it was, it was quite an honor. And then recently, I mean, I'm talking very recently, you were uh, uh, honored with a sign for your own street in Toronto. <laughs> you know, and I think to myself, three, three of the legendary broadcasters in this city of Toronto have streets named after them. Wally Crowder, Jerry Howarth, and you. <laughs> Yeah. That's wow. pretty heady company. I'm in good company. I sure am. Wow. Yeah. I, I never thought of that. Uh, well, when I left in 2018, I was told that they were going to make an application to the city to, to do that. And time went on. I never heard anything from anybody. I wasn't going to call up and say, hey, where's my street? So I just thought, well, it's, oh, yeah. it's, it's either... <laughs> It's either fallen between the cracks or the city has not approved it, one or the other. So then recently, like just maybe a month ago, I was downtown. I hadn't been in the station for years because of COVID. And I, I went in and I, I, I recorded a segment for Maryland's final week of shows. And they were having a little get together for uh, our promotions guy, Dwayne Reed, who had been there 35 years. And uh, they said, well, now that you've finished the piece for Maryland show, uh, uh, you know, and lucky you're here. We can come, you can come over and join Dwayne's little celebration. So I said, sure. So I couldn't stay for the whole thing. So I said to Sarah Cummings, I've, I've got to go. Sorry, I got to go. And she said, well, one more thing before you go. And she brings out this sign with that, yeah. that row over here, Roger Ashby way. And I thought, Oh, it's become a reality. So even though I had been told five years ago, it was going to happen. It was a big surprise when it finally did happen. So yeah, yeah again, it's, it's 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 an honor to think that that's going to be up there. Well, I don't know how long. But, I think in I think in one sense that's kind of a cooler honor than being part of the Hall of Fame. Yeah, well, maybe so. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm hoping that at best one day I'll get a speed bump named after me. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. I just say I, I wanted to tell you a story about uh, when I retired. I got a lot of emails and texts from people congratulating me, people I hadn't heard from in a long time. But I got one from somebody you know. I got one from Charles Deering. Wow. And I had never met him. 
I had Great never guy. met him, but he sent me a note that was just so thoughtful. And it meant so much to me for a number of reasons, one of which is when I was seven or eight years old, I used to listen to Charlie Deering on CKPC in Brantford. He did a show from seven to eight that was like a top 40 show. Apart from that, the other 23 hours of the day, you never would have heard Elvis Presley. But he did a rock and roll radio show from seven to eight every night when I was seven, eight wow. years old. So that's how I knew Charlie Deering. And then he comes to Toronto. He's Charles Deering. He's the wonderful newscaster that he became. And But I never met him. So to get that note out of the blue from him, he'd never yeah. met me. To, why, why would he? Why would he? I couldn't believe it. I was so honored to get that from him. That's a, that's a cool story. That's a cool story. This has been a real pleasure chatting with you. I thank you very much for, for, for taking the time to do so. And, and God, we could talk about, have you ever thought about writing a book? You've been approached. Well, a lot sure. of people have suggested that to me, but it's, it's a pain in the neck. You know, first of all, <laughs> you, 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 you don't make much money from it. You don't do it for money. No, no. And I'm, I'm, I've got lots of stories I can tell about people I've met and things like that. And I'm happy to tell them to people in person, but I have no desire to sit down and try to put a, a book together and get publishing and, ah, yeah, yeah. I, I like telling my stories, but I'm not prepared to do a book. Yeah. Yeah. How about you? No. 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 Because I think that in, in order to do that and to do it properly, you have to be 100% honest. And to be 100% honest means that somewhere along the line, you're going to hurt somebody's feelings. Yeah. And, um, I'm, I'm at the point in my life where I don't really want to hurt anybody's feelings and I'm at the point in my life where I don't want to BS. Yeah. Yeah. I think I feel the you same know? way. Yeah. I just want to keep working as long as I can keep working and then eventually go downstairs and pull out the sea breeze. Yeah, exactly. I feel like I'm doing <laughs> that now with the microphone and the iPad. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Hey, listen, Roger, thanks again very much and uh, take care. I look, look forward to listening to, to the oldie show. Uh, you can get it on uh, iHeart. You can down, download yeah. the app and yeah. listen to it on a weekly basis. That's great. Thank you very much, Ted. Enjoy talking to you. And thank you to all of you for tuning in and listening, and we hope that you'll join us again next week. And if you get a chance, drop by our website, www.tedwallishan.ca, and there you will find a listing of all of our previous episodes. You can listen back to all of them. You can sign up and share your comments and thoughts with us. We would appreciate that. Also appreciate going online and check out the organ and tissue donation opportunities. You could change or even save a life. Have a great week. The Ted Wallachian Podcast has been brought to you by Tom's Place. For the finest in men's clothing at unbeatable prices, it's Tom's Place at 190 Baldwin in the heart of Kensington Market. Tom's Place will suit you. And ETP Canada, providing estate administration with ease. The Ted Wallachian Podcast is produced by me, Becky Coles. Technical production by Paul Gatt. Music by Bike Thieves. For more information on this podcast and our sponsors, and to talk to Ted, go to www.tedwallachian.ca. You 
you looking to make the most out of this life and optimize your personal wellness? Then check out the Natural Man podcast. Join me, host Mike C, as we explore all areas of human wellness, physical, mental, and emotional. Learn strategies to optimize your own well-being and be in the driver's seat of your own health. Remember, your doctor works for you. Learn biohacks, neurohacks, ways to improve sleep, and ways to optimize your body and your mind. Check us out on Apple, Spotify, the Fountain App, and at naturalmanpodcast.com. I'm Connie Teeson, the host of Broadcast Dialogue, the podcast. We focus on Canada and the challenges facing Canadian radio and TV, as well as highlighting those moving the industry forward from podcasting and streaming to new broadcast tech. Check us out at broadcastdialogue.com or your favorite podcast app.